Welcome to For The Win. I'm your host, Emily Mulligan. Today, I speak to former Senator Scott Ludlam about the transformative experience of participating in his first ever campaign, the Jabaluka blockade, the comparisons that it has to the current Adani campaign, how he found his people and what he learned as the senator who went viral. People just figure out, well, what is it that I can do? I'm, I'm a writer or I'm a musician or I can bake a cake or I can screen print a T-shirt or I have a bit of money I can send up. And then creativity starts to take over and it starts to snowball. I love this chat about contributing what you can when you can. That might include blockading heavy machinery, playing music, running for office or donating to those who can. Oh, I'm just going to have a crack. Can't be, can't be worse at it than the clowns who are in there at the moment. <laughs> I asked him what he's up to now and he told me. So here's my chat at the pub with Scott Love. Scott Ludlam, former senator and champion, who's agreed to chat to me today about uh, one of, I guess, a pretty formative experience for him. In um, the late 90s, he went up and joined the Jabaluka blockade. So very keen to talk about this kind of monumental time in Australian activism, uh, a really critical um, campaign in terms of land rights in terms of anti-uranium, anti-nuclear stuff, uh, in terms of saving Kakadu National Park. Scott, which of all of these things was what inspired you to get up to the NT, to join in? Oh, look, to this day, I'm still not sure. I think it was uh, at the very end of 1997 um, when I was really looking for a big change in my life and was actually pretty lost in directionless and not sure what to do next. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, <clears throat> so that was, I suppose, only about a year after John Howard had won the 1996 election. So there'd been a change of government at that point. <coughs> and um, they had announced that there was, they were going to unleash uranium mining right across the whole country and that Jabaluka was going to be the first, uh, first one off the, off the blocks. And for some reason, that just triggered something in me that I knew I wanted to find out a bit more. Um, I'd never done any significant research in the area, but it was the more I found out about it, went to a rally at the end of 97, the more I found out about it from people who were working on it, the more obscene it appeared. It had everything wrong with it that you could possibly imagine. The traditional owners of the Kakadu area were very staunchly against it and asking for support. it's a uranium mine in, a, in an absolutely pristine ecological area in Kakadu National Park in the World Heritage Area. There are incredible cultural values up there that stretch back to before the last ice age. And the thinking at the time was, like, if they can put a mine in up here, they could put one anywhere. So I, at the beginning of 1998, I threw in my lot with the local Jabaluka Action Group in Perth. Well, I didn't get up there till the end of the year. So, um, really, and and just like for the purposes of this conversation, this is my first campaign. I was a complete foot soldier. Like I was not involved in in activism or involved in any of the big NGOs or anything like that. Wasn't involved in the Greens. So it was very much um, for me an experience as a complete novice, as someone completely new to activist subcultures, to land rights organising, all of that stuff. And our job really 
for, for 1998 was to spend a year to support the people who were going up to the blockade. <clears throat> the blockade was there, obviously, for visual spectacle and effect, but more pragmatically, it was about um, preventing the company from getting equipment onto the mineral lease before the wet season hit at the end of 98. So they, uh, the, the decision was made before I got involved to actually physically put people and equipment in the way. Uh, There's only one road onto that lease and the job of the blockade was to, was to stop equipment getting onto the site, which meant the job of the Jabalooka Action Groups around the country was to support people getting up there, send them money, send them food, and help train, train people who were going to get on their way. And um, I learned an enormous amount um, during that year about organising and how these campaigns are put together. I mean, that's a pretty bold strategy as well, like somewhere that's pretty bloody remote. Um, I mean, I think also there's often a tension between what the traditional owners want and what the kind of conservationists want. Mm. So there was a lot there to sort of navigate. Yeah, and I mean, to be honest, I was completely oblivious to a lot of that until I actually got up there. So I didn't get to camp until about September in the last month or so of the of the blockade before the wet season really set in. <clears throat> and uh, it, it blew away... Like, the first day I got there, it blew away all my illusions, really, about what we were organising for. I'd been, in, I'd been involved understanding that um, it should be the sovereign right of the people of that area to oppose it if they, if they chose... But I think I was still approaching it in a, in the sense of a, tra- a traditional environmental campaign or an anti-nuclear campaign. And it's about the larger nuclear fuel chain. People were going up there as a as a kind of anti-capitalist statement, or for you know purely environmental reasons. And it wasn't until I got there that I realised that first and foremost, above all, it's a land rights campaign. The Mirar mob would give you a passport when you arrived in camp. Like, welcome to country, here are the rules. If you observe them, you're welcome here. And if you don't, you're on the first bus back home. And <clears throat> even the idea of being given a passport to country was something of a shock. And we'd all seen on television, we'd seen Yvonne Margarula, who is the senior traditional owner, is still the senior traditional owner for that country, had been arrested a few months previously for trespass on her own country. Mm. So... Th- those were the things, and that completely realigned my head about um, the fact that we were going up there to support a land rights self-determination campaign, everything else kind of secondary. Um, and that absolutely caused tensions between people who were doing the work for a variety of different reasons and weren't used to, um, to organising within the framework of uh, strong Aboriginal leadership. And did that filter into sort of day-to-day decision-making at the camp? Well, well, it did. And as I say, I was kind of a foot soldier. So I I feel like a lot of the politics of camp and the wider campaign passed me by. And you could Mm -hmm. see them, you go through the old newsletters and you can see those tensions. So there were a couple of Christian activists who who, uh, sought permission, were denied permission and went ahead and did an action anyway where they shed blood uh, on some equipment on the mineral lease, which threw up a huge rift in camp. The mm. traditional owners were very strongly against that kind of um, that kind of action on, on sacred ground and that then throws up tensions between groups who are used to organising as anarchists where there's no central form of authority who aren't used to being told what to do. Uh, and so those, I mean, that was the kind of tensions that were, um, that were part of the camp by the time I got there. 
amazing. And I saw some footage actually that there's like really, really intact rock art still up there. You know, so real sacred sites. And I think some people from the camp were invited to go and see those. Yeah, after the... <clears throat> I think that was um, something I recall quite vividly. Um, after the last mass action where... Uh, more than 100 people were arrested in the late stages before they made the decision to close the camp down. Um, we were invited up to some of the rock art galleries and told some of the stories and kind of took a walk through some of those areas. And it's, it's, it's absolutely astonishing. I mean, there's public areas that you can see if you go up to Ubia, for example, um, where you can see this incredible work that's clearly been there for a phenomenally long time. But without the um, falls a little... I mean, it's beautiful and it's worth a look. But if you're with somebody who understands story and understands why it's there and what its purpose is, it's a completely different experience. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. That's, you're pretty lucky to have got to do that, to see that. Truly, yes. Um, and I was thinking there are some similarities in this campaign with kind of um, what's going on in the reef, Galilee Basin and Adani in terms of, you know, one big major player is the World Heritage Council um, and the global scrutiny on this, these Australian sites. And so the World Heritage Council was saying one thing um, and the Australian government was completely at odds with that. Um, is that something you saw play out there? We did see it play out at Jabaluka. It's a Kakadu is a World Heritage Area on cultural and uh, ecological grounds. It, it meets several criteria. And so it does lay an international dimension over the national and local elements of the campaign. And I think you're right. It's kind of similar in the sense that the Australian government is writhing around. They're desperate to avoid uh, any kind of listing that World Heritage is being placed in danger, and so they'll go to quite grotesque lengths to prevent that from happening, including, you know, bastardisation of scientific reports and processes and forms of, of kind of behind-the-scenes behaviour that look borderline corrupt. And I'm not close enough to the Adani campaign to know exactly how that's playing out at the moment, but it feels similar, both in terms of that there's a strong Aboriginal um, traditional owner element to the campaign uh, and Aboriginal leadership is already very important in that campaign. The scale of it is something that I think is bringing to mind Jabaluka or the Franklin before it. It's one of those things that if and when push comes to shove, we're going to need to kind of drop everything and make sure that thing doesn't get up. And that those polarising moments, they're terrifying because we shouldn't still be in, in this mess, particularly not in a campaign against the coal mine, but they are also galvanising and quite powerful moments in that sense as well. Mm. And Jabaluka was that, I think, for generation of um, folk who missed the Franklin, people like me who missed the Franklin Dam, but were still able to participate in something that was bigger than any, you know, any of us as individuals. And how that's going to play out, I guess, in the Galilee Basin has consequences, obviously, for the local area that are profound, but also for broader climate campaigning here and overseas. Yeah, absolutely. So the international stuff is, I guess, one lever that um, environmentalists and activists have to pull. But I think when you look back at um, Jabaluka, we had 5,000 people 
up there at the campaign at the blockade. Six hundred arrests. It really seems like the non-violent direct action, occupying, trespass of the site, blockading the road. That was really what at least slowed down the progress of the mine enough to, you know, start having a financial toll. Would you say it was one of the more effective strategies? It's hard to disentangle. Mm. It's definitely one of the most visible strategies, and that's why we're still talking about it 20 years later. But um, in the sense that I think it performs a couple of roles. One of them is that you're physically preventing equipment from moving onto the lease, and the company's only got a finite number of weeks in which it can do that. And so that's, that's pushing their timelines back, and that, that's a material impact. The second thing is that it's, uh, it's visually spectacular when you've got 100 people on a road or you've got people attached to machinery. That draws TV cameras, it draws, it draws press attention, um, and that is a powerful way of putting the issue in front of people on the, on the evening news. But... In a way, if your campaign gets to that stage of direct action, it means you're very, very late in the day. Mm. And it's going to be the case with the Carmichael coal mine as well, I think. If you get to the stage of a blockade um, at Jabaluka and, and in Queensland, it'll mean the company's got all its legal paperwork in hand. It means government, state and federal have signed off. It means they're kind of ready to loose equipment onto the side. And by that time, it's pretty... It's late, you know, it's late in the day. Um... And you just kind of throw everything at it. But these campaigns, in my limited experience, don't really work unless, you, unless you're hurling the kitchen sink at them. So we had people, for example, going after Westpac Bank, queuing up, opening accounts, closing them again as one of the lead financiers of Jabaluka. Um, you had the world, all the World Heritage Committee processes going on in the background as well. It was like between Paris and... and um, and different parts of Australia. You've got the blockade happening up at Kakadu. You've got Jabaluka action groups uh, all over the country, not just sending support up to the blockade, but also putting, you know, applying pressure politically during the 1998 election campaign. You're throwing the kitchen sink at this thing and hope that something sticks. And as it turned out, the most important thing, if you were going to single out a single thing from that campaign, uh, was the steadfast way in which Yvonne and the Mirar mob held their ground and played their the cards that they had, the legal entitlements that they had to consent over the over the mining, uh, very very shrewdly, like very very cleverly, and that was what ultimately prevailed when when Rio Tinto ended up in possession of the of the the um, parent company's ERA. They ended up looking at all the, these kind of factors arrayed against them and just said, look, it's not worth it. And they ended up signing an agreement with Yvonne that said we won't, uh, we won't open up this mineral lease without consent of Mira. And at that point, the, the mine went into the deep freeze and that's where it remains. And so it's hard to disentangle out the role of direct action. You know that it's important on a couple of levels, but if that's all you've got, then, you, then you're probably in real trouble. Yeah. yeah. There's a few... I mean, it was one of those really, really big, iconic campaigns, I think, um, with a lot of attention. And it's important to notice that we won, um, and um, it did never go ahead, the mine. But uh, there were the likes of uh, Bono in town joining in. There were artists and stuff going up there. We had Peter Garrett and Midnight Oil playing concerts. 
um, sea of hands actions, mm. demonstrations in all major cities. Yeah. Like, this was huge. And with the mirror, do you think the people actually coordinating a lot of it or did it take off and take off in a life of its own? So Yvonne and a really powerful Aboriginal woman called Jackie Katona um, did a speaking tour at the beginning of 1998 and they came around each of the, each of the big cities. And uh, it was the job of the, of the action groups in each town at that point to just host an event, put these two incredible women in front of as many people as possible. And they were at that point asking for help in particular ways. Help us organise for the blockade, help us be visible everywhere, send money, send people. And they had a limited number of quite specific practical things that we could do. And then that was what lit the fuse. And then after that, um, the, the beauty of self-organising takes over. So you've got these groups that come together with a unity of purpose to support this camp. Um, and at that point, and we're seeing it happening again, I think, around, around the Carmichael mine, people just figure out, well, what is it that I can do? I'm, I'm a writer or I'm a musician or I can bake a cake or I can screen print a T-shirt or I have a bit of money I can send up. And then creativity starts to take over and it starts to snowball if you've got a good, strong campaign. And I don't know. I think if we knew what the magic of that was and how to generate that, because it's different in each campaign, um, if we knew what that magic was, we'd have created peace on earth by now. <laughs> you've got to, I think, reinvent it each time. Yeah, It's probably all product of the time and circumstance and it is uh, you can see enough repeating patterns in successful campaigns I think to be able to learn from what's been done in the past which I think is why this podcast is so cool uh, but you can't know in advance how to win these things there's going to be unique things in play I think every single time do you think your involvement in the Jabaluka campaign is what turned you into a um, anti-nuclear campaign? Yeah, it changed my life. Um, the very first meeting that I went to um, of organisers, of people who were gearing up at the beginning of 98 to work out how to challenge this thing, which looked unstoppable at that point, I spilled out of that meeting practically levitating because I, I realised I'd kind of found a home. I'd found my, my movement family that I hadn't known I, would, I was missing. So it completely changed my life. And then, like the incredible good fortune of good mentors and good teachers, uh, a really strong focus on non-violence training and, and equipping people with the tools to do good organising. And um, the fact that it was a win uh, makes a vast difference. And then we were seeing, I was seeing people whose first campaign was Beverly, for example, the uranium mine in central South Australia, where their blockade camp up there was smashed by South Australian Star Force police. They locked a bunch of people, including children, in a shipping container and pepper sprayed them. Um, and they, the police were later successfully prosecuted. They, that mine went ahead after they just, you know, smashed this camp and, and pushed people out of the way. See the same in, in some of the forest organising that I've been involved with. People come out quite traumatised and being a part of a losing campaign is really bruising. So I feel very fortunate that the first thing I got engaged with was put together so exceptionally well. Yeah, and these iconic victory. Truly. It helps a lot. It does. It helps with morale and it, um, I mean, it doesn't emotionally prepare you for the next time when you go under the wheels of the bulldozer, but um, like as, as a reasonably young person involved in something for the first time, the idea that you could collectively 
with a scrappy insurgency take on the federal government, the territory government, the mining industry, the nuclear industry, the police, big sections of the media, and prevail really had a profound impact on me. Pretty iconic. Mm. Also, uh, Bob Brown um, was a probably a lone senator at the time. I think Dee was in there also. Maybe um, there were two. Dee, yeah, so Bob Brown and Dee Margetts were in the Senate at that time. And they were, I mean, they were on the back of the truck. They were right there with you. Yeah. Um, was that when you picked your mob, you said, yep, um, sign me up? Um, I didn't quite, I didn't actually quite click with that until a, until a little bit later. Um, uh, probably until a couple of years after that, when it was kind of obvious that it was the Greens who would who would let us use their photocopiers, uh, and they were the kind of crew in in Parliament who were holding the door open to the rest of us, so that we could use the tools of Parliament to mm-hmm. to make up that part of the campaign. I can remember not really having a strong impression of Bob actually until the September 11, the huge demonstrations um, that happened I think in the year 2000 at Crown Casino in Melbourne when the World Economic Forum visited and it was a vast blockade um, it was off the back of what had just happened in Seattle and you know people were, were being gassed and beaten up by police and there's Bob Brown in a bright yellow raincoat with this huge grin on his face um, standing right in the middle of all these demonstrators and I can remember thinking, like, his presence is making it safer for all other kids around him. Like, mm-hmm. the idea that you've got a public figure with a strong public profile, publicly, unapologetically, quite joyfully, backing this big insurgency, um, that was when it clicked that I'd found my mob. Like, that, that was just kind of great to see him right in the thick of it. Absolutely. Yeah. So when did you think, all right, I'm going to run for parliament, that's my next path to trying to change the world? Not for heaps later. I, I was much happier as an introvert um, being behind the scenes. So I got involved in state politics first, um, staffing for a very dear friend of mine called Robin Chapel, who was the, the uh, Legislative Council member for the North West of WA, and spent four very good years working for him. Uh, and then went to work for Rachel Seward and the whole in, in the Senate, and she's she's been a, a really important mentor and friend as well. Um, and it didn't click till quite late, till about 2006, that I might want to have a go myself. I was pretty happy supporting other people. So how how was it? How was running for Parliament or the Senate rather? Oh, that was. I mean, it's a. It's a joyful ride, and I wish it on everybody at least once in their, <laughs> in their really? lives. Yeah, kind of. I mean, it's um, it's a unique kind of campaigning. I mean, yeah. So it's not for everybody, obviously, but um, it's very freeing. Like, and particularly at the moment, politics is so toxic. They're just it looks so shit, um, and so hard to see hope on the horizon. There's something very enjoyable about saying, all right, well, I want to put my money where my mouth is. Mm. If I think I could do it better than these other people, um, it kind of, uh, it lifts, I don't know, lifts some kind of weird psychological burden off you just going, all right, well, I'm just going to have a crack. Can't be, can't be worse at it than the clowns who are in there at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> True. And then is there something you're proud of that you brought in terms of I mean maybe your experience from Jabaluka like 
were the Greens always 100% anti-nuclear? Were you able to get in there and be like, I'm changing the position of a serious political party on, on these issues? Not on nukes. No, it's in the DNA of mm. the party. I mean, it formed out of the nuclear abolition movement and uranium mining campaigns, at least in WA. I think mm. <clears throat> the origins of the parties around the country are similar but a bit different. I think, like in New South Wales, there's there's a... I think a stronger flavour of trade union and left organising in Tassie, it grew out of the forest movement and in, in Western Australia um, it has a strong anti-nuclear flavour and it always has. So I didn't need to change any minds. It was more that the ability to represent the some of the groups and some of the amazing people that I'd been working with already for 10 years uh, in that environment was an absolute joy. So we were... The one that comes to mind, I guess, is the Muckety Waste Dump campaign. It's like I'm practically working with family, uh, except I'm in this different role now. And we threw everything that we had at that, and eventually we helped um, these incredible women in Tennant Creek hold on to their land, and the you know the waste government's waste focus has moved on. So that, uh, like, even if we achieve nothing else, and I think we achieved quite a bit in a way, but like that being able to take the burden off those old ladies um, made it worth every every minute. And do you have any... I mean, you would have had way more tools in your toolbox, presumably, as a senator, um, in terms of your rat baggery on different issues. Oh, yeah. Um, can you think of any other great examples? Just being the best resourced greenie in the country, I think. Like, it's remarkable the... Resourcing. I mean, you're, it's still, you're still in a David Goliath contest with things that are much more concentrated amounts of political and economic power than we do. But uh, relative to what I was used to, it like just having a little focused staff team, having the ability to be able to travel, uh, having budgets to be able to support people in some small ways, and having the tools and the platform of parliament um, gives just adds to capacity... And I feel like I'd had very good teachers in that idea of you're, you're there to hold the door open for people. You're there to provide others with that kind of access, um, which is uh, which can be hard to achieve otherwise. Do you have any like regrets from that time? You weren't able to lock yourself to a tree, or or <laughs> um, uh, any up like were there any handcuffs in being that position as well? Yeah, but I feel like I went into that with with my eyes open. Um, and, I mean, handcuffs, that's kind of interesting. Like, Jo Valentine had been arrested when she was a senator a couple of times. She went over the wire at Pine Gap while she was in the Senate. So there's nothing that says that MPs can't get involved in nonviolent direct action. I mean, Richard launched our last election campaign um, uh, from memory in a canoe out the back of of Newcastle Coal Terminal. So I think that stuff is is still in our blood. Um, so no, not handcuffs, but your 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 principal role if you're occupying that spot is um, you know you're in a legislature. You've got access to votes, to tools, to the library, to committee processes. You're in balance of power on bills, whether you care about the bills or not. Your principal obligation's got to be to to being in that role and if that doesn't suit you then it's fine there'll be other people who come through for who it does but you can't just be a full-time activist you've got the legislative obligations which you've got to take seriously otherwise you shouldn't be there yeah absolutely 
And uh, what's next, Scott? Showing you not showing sick of answering this question. But. No, well, I've been out of the country researching a book for six months, so I haven't been around a lot of people I know who've been asking. But um, that's the answer. So uh, one of the things that Parliament doesn't give you a huge amount of time for, if you're concentrating, is to think about the bigger questions, theory of change stuff. Like, are we effective? Should we be doing things differently? What can we learn from others around the world? Um, and so in the in the, um, in the meantime, kind of suddenly finding myself pitched out back into civilian life again, I decided to write a book. Mm-hmm. So I'm about halfway through that process, and that's what that's going to be about, is uh, partly to figure out for myself what to do next, but partly to try and engage with some of the bigger stuff that it's mm-hmm. difficult to do when you're completely um, hammered all the time with, with the demands of that job. Absolutely. So everybody... Uh, Buy Scott's book. <laughs> <laughs> or or steal months. it, illegally download it, whatever, but uh, <laughs> please read it. <laughs> Are there any um, other kind of issues that have taken your attention kind of recently in terms of what, what um, people should read up on or think about? Or? Um, I think at the moment it's really it's, it's useful to watch the direction in which politics are going in the US, mm-hmm. partly because the we get the kind of backwash of whatever's happening in the US a couple of years later, like our miserable excuse for an alt-right kind of inherit stuff in the US just after it's ceased being edgy. So we can kind of... I feel like we've got a lot to learn from what colleagues and comrades are up against and what sort of new strategies they're putting together in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, having just been there briefly, that um, I guess it's a bit front of mind at the moment. Um, and New South Wales is on fire and it's the middle of winter and the government is in this self-imposed catastrophe of just miserable capitulation and compromise and potentially potentially passing the prime ministership onto Peter Dutton as though that's a serious thing they're contemplating. So what's in my mind at the moment is that these people... Um, uh, I, think it would be, I think it would be healthy if they were just roundly demolished at the next federal election and a lot of these evil bastards just need to lose their jobs. So kind of thinking about the best way of pitching in on that so we have a bit of a a clean sweep, maybe some new energy come through. That'd be amazing. Is there any, like, one cool example of something you learned on your travels that you're keen to share? Oh, goodness, so much. Well, I'm not even officially back. I'm going to probably take off again in a couple of weeks. But um, um, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, It's been quite a rich few months. And maybe while we're figuring out how to hurl Peter Dutton into the unemployment queue, um, throw a few dollars to your favourite organisers or charity of people who were looking after the huge Rohingya camp in Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh. I was able to visit there just a couple of months ago and the monsoon has since inundated huge parts of that camp and there's more than a million people there. It's the biggest refugee encampment in the world. And um, it's there because of this sort of vast geopolitical failure that allows these things to happen to to the Rohingya people. Um, But the Australian government is still... Uh, still collaborating with the Myanmar military and 
I just think there's always more that we can do to help people who find themselves at the extreme end of, of these sort of disasters while we figure out how to rewire our politics to try and prevent these things from happening in the first place. Yeah, and we do have that really kind of um, direct link there. So that is a lever that we have to pull. Truly. Absolutely. Scott, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. been listening to for the win the podcast that goes behind the scenes of the campaign strategies and people that change australia forever thanks so much for listening and uh, leave us a review if you enjoyed the podcast